A few years ago, Mr. Robert Welch commissioned a young man who had just graduated magna cum laude from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. to write a book. That book was published this year by Western Islands is entitled Conspiracy Against God and Man. In it, the author delves into the part played by the revolutionary lodges in France and Germany during the last quarter of the 18th century in creating the early strength and rapid growth of Adam Weishaupt's Illuminati. This young author, our speaker this morning, served four years as an enlisted man in the United States Air Force before his study of philosophy at the Catholic University of America. After college, he spent two years studying theology at the United, in the United States before going to Switzerland, where he completed his theology studies at the tra traditional Roman Catholic seminary of the Society of St. Pius X. He was ordained a priest on April 14, 1973. <clears throat> he is now, with others, working for the establishment of the Society of St. Pius X in America. Therefore, it is truly a distinct privilege and pleasure for me to introduce to you now this young priest, respected author, and proud member of the John Burt Society, Father Clarence Kelly. Don't believe a word he said. <laughs> the microphone's in my way. Uh, last night, had the privilege of uh, having dinner with Mr. Welsh, and before I left, it was about 11 p.m., and I told him that I was going to write the speech if I got through my sermon, which I said I had to begin about 12 last night. And since I didn't get through my sermon so I could write the speech, I'm going to give the sermon. And all, and all, all those who don't want to become Catholics can please leave. <laughs> Normally, when a person tells a story, or a joke for that matter, he usually saves the punchline for the end. I would like to give the punchline at the beginning so that it is a consideration that you keep in mind throughout the entire talk. This underlying consideration is this. Speaking as one Catholic priest who believes it is his responsibility to oppose communism in a realistic way, I must say that in all honesty, I cannot think of a better way in terms of a non-religious organization than in and through the John Birch Society. <laughs> to my knowledge, it is the only organization of its kind which possesses the potential to expose the conspiracy which threatens society, our country, Christian civilization, and the salvation of souls. So to begin, If someone were to take a survey across the United States concerning the subject of communism with regard to the question of where it came from and how, how old and powerful it is, I think that most people would express the opinion that the communist conspiracy began in the early part of this century with the emergence and triumph of Bolshevism in Russia. 
Some would go back a bit further and point to the 19th century socialists as the originators of the communist ideology. Most people questioned in such a survey would see communism as having its origin in Marx, in Lenin, and in Stalin. At the same time, <clears throat> I think this popular view would limit the size, the reach, and the strength of communism to the geographical acquisitions of the communist empire and to the power of the communist parties in non-communist countries. Based on the popular histories and the type of information that is fed into the minds of Americans by the press and TV, it is really not hard to understand why most people look upon communism in this way. To the testimony of the TV and newspaper pundits is added the university intellectuals. From a mingling of the two, we get the view of the expert, which is also strangely the view of the masses. For who are the people to listen to, if not the experts? Thus, the popular view of communism is also the expert view and the obvious view. It is the obvious view and the obvious notion because it is the one that respectable people accept and it is the one that respectable people are supposed to accept. But the question is, are the experts right? Are the people supporting the truth? Is the principle which says that the voice of the expert is the voice of God a valid principle for rational people to follow? First of all, it must be said and it must be understood and we must embed it into our consciousness that the voice of the expert is not necessarily the voice of truth. The opinion of the expert is not necessarily the right opinion, nor is the truth determined by numbers and ballots. There is no necessary relationship between the number of people that favor something and the truth. That is, by the way, the basic fallacy of democracy. It is that the truth comes through the ballot box. And that is absolutely false. What the experts teach and the people accept is obvious. But the obvious does not necessarily express the comprehensive reality of the situation. If you will excuse the word, we may say that it is simplistic to say that the obvious view is necessarily the true view. For example, it is obvious that the sun rises. In point of fact, the sun does not rise. If you must speak in terms of rising, it is more accurate to say that the earth rises. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that in all circumstances we are supposed to reject the views and the opinions of those people who are professionals and who are supposed to be the experts. Though, come to think of it, it really might not be such a bad idea. Rather, what I would like to say is that they are not necessarily right. The voice of the expert is not the voice of God. On the contrary, sometimes it is the voice of Satan. Frequently, it is merely the voice of error. To get at the truth of a complex issue is sometimes very difficult indeed. It often requires extremely hard work, diligent study, 
and a tremendous amount of serious reflection. This is so even when that which one is searching to determine does not involve the discovery and the exposure of things which might be detrimental to important people and powerful forces. But when the pressure is on, and when powerful elements are seeking to obscure the facts and to hide the truth, then its discovery is that much more difficult, especially when opportunist intellectuals and opportunist experts are more concerned with success than with the truth. The basic principle then that you have to accept is that the experts are not necessarily right. They are not necessarily right concerning the question of communism because the newspapers say it's the newspapers say it is true it is not necessarily true I propose to you that the expert view and the obvious conclusions are totally wrong that the accepted concept concerning communism and the communist conspiracy is false and I further propose that powerful forces are at work to see that the erroneous notion of communism and the distorted view of its history are maintained. For if the truth were known by enough people, a death blow could be delivered to the conspiratorial apparatus of which the communist conspiracy is a major component. It is therefore extremely important that these evil forces continue to propagate the popular obvious view which most people have concerning communism. But that is not the whole story. There is another reason for the propagation of the popular conception of communism. It is this. The popular conception of communism is itself an effective tool of subversion. It is an effective tool of subversion in that it provides the motivation and the justification for leftist policies of the American politicians. The policies which the American politicians are using in their process of building up the communists and their allies, often under the cloak of anti-communism, and positioning the United States for the great merger with the Soviet Union. If then, the obvious view is false, what is the accurate view? If the experts are wrong and the popular conception is erroneous, what is the accurate view and the true picture? I propose that the accurate view and the true picture reveal that the communist organization, which we call the communist conspiracy, was not born in 1917 with the triumph of Bolshevism in the Russian Revolution, nor did it begin ideologically with the writings and activities of Karl Marx. Furthermore, I propose that communism in its ultimate source and constitution is not a plot emanating from Moscow and Peking, nor is its sphere of influence limited to the communist countries and the communist parties of the free world. Communism is not the product of Marx and the Russian Revolution, but Marx and the Russian Revolution are products of more ancient and more powerful forces. Thus, in the words of one socialist, communism was handed down in the dark to the secret societies. If you are really interested in uncovering the source of communism, do not look to Marx and Lenin. Look beyond them to the forces behind them. 
If you are not really convinced of this now, I think it is not presumptuous to say that you will be when you leave, not because of anything I have to say in my own authority, but because of the testimony of great and noble men which will be presented. Testimony which I think is devastating to those who try to make a spectacle out of the, the people who say that there is in fact a conspiracy behind what is happening throughout the world today. At the same time, I want you to keep in mind that what is given here is only a mere sampling of the far more extensive body of information which is contained in my book, which exposes the conspiracy against God and man in a more comprehensive fashion. That was a commercial. There is something else that you also have to keep in mind. You have to keep in mind that we are not engaged in an intellectual pursuit. We are engaged in a deadly war. And the stakes of this war are not just a country and a civilization, but what is infinitely more important, the souls of men. The communists are instruments of hell and servants of evil. More than anything, they seek to corrupt and to destroy and to rule the souls of men. They are not interested in physical slavery alone, but in spiritual slavery as well. They seek to rule and to dominate the whole man, his body and his soul. The conclusion that comes from that is this. Anyone who would propose that it is God's will that we do not actively oppose the conspiracy against God and man understands neither God nor his will. If you are really interested in saving souls, then you had better do something more than praying. It is your duty not just to pray against evil, but to fight against it. And this working and this fighting must be done immediately. For the hour is late. Make no mistake about it. As far as America is concerned in this war with the forces of evil, there will be one winner and one loser. Even though the forces of evil will ultimately be destroyed, that does not mean that America will eventually be restored. The defeat and the destruction of communism is the only solution to the communist problem acceptable to free men. But this, but this cannot be brought about without a tremendous awakening of the American people. It's as simple as that. An awakening which will reveal two things. The first thing is the existence and the true nature of communism. And secondly, the grave moral duty that we have to oppose it. 
The solution to the problem depends on an adequate understanding of the enemy. And this understanding does not yet exist. Not only does it not exist, but as the popular conception is false, so too is the solution proposed by the experts and accepted by the people. It is really hard for many of us to accept. But it does actually appear to be true that most people think that the conflict with communism is based on a mere philosophical dispute. So great, we are told, are the philosophical differences that at times they have even resulted in unfortunate conflicts, police actions, and wars. The solution, they say, to the problem of world conflicts is the attainment of the spirit of understanding. And this understanding is being secured under the illuminating leadership of enlightened politicians. Politicians who tell us that the West and the East are finally learning to talk. They are finally learning to put away their intolerance and the former dogmatism which they had professed. At last, lo and behold, they are moving toward an alliance. Détente is the word they use to describe this process. This process whereby the communist world and the free world are preparing to bury their old animosities and to build a new order of things in which some kind of permanent peace will be secured and in which differences and disputes will be settled by ballots and by words and not by bullets and by wars. Falling for this propaganda, the American people are starting to hope against hope. They are starting to hope against hope by beginning to believe that to bargain with ruthless communist murderers is the only practical principle for dealing with the threat that they pose. My friends, the tragedy is not just that the people are wrong. The real tragedy is that the solution to the problem of communism that is held up and which is being accepted by the people is itself the very instrument that will be used to lead to the enslavement of America. Common sense should tell us that when people ally themselves with the forces of hell, they are destined to spiritual ruin. When a nation joins hands with communism, the effect is not to move that country toward real peace, but to move it toward a communist peace. And a communist peace is nothing less than the situation in which all opposition is removed to tyranny. True peace is the tranquility which flows from the adherence to order, to order in our lives, in our families, in society, and in the world. But it must be the order that was ordained by God and which is reflected in man's nature as a rational being. It must not be the order of hell, which is the order of the conspiracy and the one that they seek to impose upon the world. This evil order of things was clearly understood by Lenin in his definition of communism. Communism, he said, is, based, is power based upon force and limited to nothing by no kind of law and by absolutely no set rule. If you want to prevent the establishment of such a system here in the United States and on an international scale, then you must understand the enemy. You must understand the enemy which is the conspiracy and you must spread this understanding. It is hard for us to accept 
But it is nonetheless true that an international system of political power is being forged. Its principle of operation will be raw power, and its only law will be its perpetuation at any cost. This is the meaning of a communist peace. And the speed, the process which is bringing this about, is, is attaining, is increasing every day. It is increasing and it is gaining momentum. And it will continue to succeed as long as the American people continue to be deceived. The world is plunging toward what appears to be an almost imminent universal disaster. An imminent universal disaster that will be brought about by the international communist government which is taking shape. The scheme for the socialization of the United States in preparation for the great merger with the Soviet Union is the means by which this universal despotism, this new order of the world based on the old order of hell, this is the means by which it will be established. This becomes increasingly clear as tyranny comes increasingly close. It also becomes increasingly clear as more and more people come to realize that there does exist a gigantic conspiracy of which communism is one phase. This realization brings with it the knowledge that the problem we face is not that communism is an instrument of Russia and China, but more importantly, that Russia and China and communism itself are instruments of other forces which have been laboring to establish their so-called universal republic for at least two centuries. What we must appreciate, what we must communicate to others is this simple fact. The communists did not create the conspiracy. The conspiracy created communism. It created communism and it created the heroes of communism. Both Marx and Lenin were more instruments than originators of communism. Karl Marx, as you know, is considered by many to have been a great champion of the suffering masses. A part of the evidence to prove this is the spirit of righteous indignation which animates and which was supposed to have inspired his infamous Communist Manifesto. He is also famous for his work in connection with the International Working Men's Association, which was established in 1864 and which is known as the First Communist International. And finally, Marx is considered to be a great philosopher and his chief credential in order to justify this claim is his work, Das Kapital, which was published in 1867. Let us briefly consider the mythical Marx in order to understand the real Marx. As far as Das Kapital, which is supposed to establish him as this great philosopher is concerned, it is clear that he got his ideas from others. It is not an original work. These included a group of English theorists, including Robert Thompson, Hodgkin, Gray, and especially William Carpenter. The old Catholic encyclopedia put it this way. Das Kapital is really nothing more than a skillful combination of Hegelian evolutionism and of French revolutionism and the economic theories elaborated by Ricardo on the one hand and this group of English theorists on the other. Das Kapital, or capital in English, 
is not then the great original masterpiece which some might think it is. Indeed, it is not only original, it is also useless, except for propaganda. The introduction to the 1971 Washington Square Press edition of the Communist Manifesto put it this way. Capital has rarely convinced anyone who was not already bent toward Marxism. Economists, historians, and philosophers have long since ceased to take it as a serious contribution to their fields. It is so long and so dull a book that few Marxists can read or understand it. The function of capital in the world of Marxist socialism is to sit on the shelves heavy and impressive and to be pointed to as evidence that somewhere there is deep intellectual proof of what any given Marxist may happen to feel. So much for Marx the philosopher. As for Marx, the founder of the Communist International, that is the first international, Henry Edward Manning, Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster in the 19th century, had this to say. He said, the international is not a creation of Karl Marx. It is a growth in the wilderness of man. But creation or growth, the international exists and every 10 years attains extension, solidity, and organized unity of power. This has been the work of secret political societies which from 1789 to this day have been perfecting their formation and have drawn closer together in mutual alliance and cooperation. In 1848, they were sufficiently powerful to threaten almost every capital in Europe by a simultaneous rising. In 1871, they obtained their greatest momentary success in Paris. As far as Marx the idealist, while it is true that some have presented him to the world as the champion of the downtrodden masses, a champion who was driven to strike out against the ruling classes, because of their exploitation of the workers, the real Marx is far different. The real Marx is as different from the mythical Marx as the real story of the Communist Manifesto is different from what many think. As Das Kapital was a philosophical fraud, so too was the Communist Manifesto an idealistic fraud. The Communist Manifesto is not a work of intellectual genius born of a love for the suffering people of this world. Indeed, at best, the most charitable thing that can be said about it is that it is mere rhetoric. As for the manifesto of the Communist Party, it was written by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, as many of you already know, because they were commissioned to do it by a secret communist society. The society that commissioned them to do it emerged in 1848. It had commissioned Marx and Engels in 1847 while it was still a secret society. Engels himself testified to this in 1888, writing in the preface to that year's English edition of the Manifesto. He said, the Manifesto was published as the platform of the Communist League, which was before 1848 unavoidably a secret society. Marx and Engels had been more explicit in their 1872 preface to the German edition where they said, 
This is both Marx and Engels. The Communist League, which could of course be only a secret one under the conditions, the conditions obtaining at the time, commissioned the undersigned at the Congress held in London in 1847 to draw up for publication a detailed theoretical practical program of the party. Such was the origin of the following manifesto, the manuscript of which traveled to London to be printed a few weeks before the February Revolution. This is Marx and Engels testifying to the fact that they were hired by a secret communist society to write the communist manifesto. Marx and Engels are saying that they are not the originators of the so-called communism of the manifesto. They're saying that the Communist Manifesto is a platform for a secret political party. A man named George Edward Sullivan, who wrote on collectivism and communism some years back, asked the question which we find ourselves asking. If this is true, why is Karl Marx featured in propaganda as the father of communism and praised as the author of the Communist Manifesto? and for pretended originality in thinking out a plan as set forth in said manifesto. Evidently, Mr. Sullivan said, to divert attention from Marx's real status as an emissary of an outlawed gang, and to conceal the fact that the Communist Manifesto of 1848 had merely used another name for the same age-old plot that had masqueraded as Illuminism before the French Revolution of 1789 and that had doubtless contributed largely to the reign of terror in that period. Thus the Communist Manifesto had merely used another name for the plot which had previously brought about the French Revolution of 1789 and which had largely contributed to the reign of terror. Professor John Robeson, the famous mathematician and scientist who lectured at Edinburgh University on hydrodynamics, on astronomy, on optics, on electricity and magnetism, and who contributed many articles to the third edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and who was general secretary of the very distinguished organization known as the Royal Society of Edinburgh, as well as the author of many scientific books, has among his volumes one he wrote called Proofs of a Conspiracy, 1798. Many of you are familiar with this book. It was republished by Western Islands in 1967. In this book, Professor Robeson contends that the leaders of the French Revolution of 1789 worked with a conspiratorial association called the Order of the Illuminati. He says these leaders of the revolution, quote, conducted their first movements according to its principles and by means of its instruction and assistance, unquote. This famous and respected scientist, who was one of the distinguished men of his day, was saying that the leaders of the French Revolution of 1789, that glorious revolution that is played up in American high school textbooks, these leaders were in cahoots with a conspiracy and they worked according to instructions and they did exactly what it said. By anticipation, Robeson stood against all those popular historians that could see only blind historical forces as the cause of significant historical events. 
Anyone who sees anything else but blind historical forces causing things to happen has something wrong with his mind. Robeson described the conspiracy and he testified to its continued existence in 1798. As you know, as many of you know, I should say, there was an attempt by the Bavarian government to suppress the order of the Illuminati. And it is interesting to note that in those history books and in the old encyclopedias that give you some information on Adam Weishaupt and on this conspiracy, they generally mention the fact that there was this suppression and automatically assume that it went out of existence. The contrary is true because by the time the suppression actually started, they had become an international organization. They had secured tremendous influence throughout the world in all the capitals of Europe. Robeson said in 1798, this association has been formed for the express purpose of rooting out all the religious establishments and overturning all the existing governments of Europe. I have seen this association exerting itself zealously and systematically till it has almost become irresistible. And I lastly have seen that this association still exists and still works in secret. Was Robeson, the scientist, a conspiracy-hunting fanatic? Judge for yourselves. Fifty-eight years later, on July 14, 1856, Benjamin Disraeli, the great English statesman, gave this testimony in the British House of Commons. He said, quote, there is in Italy a power which we seldom mention in this house. I mean the secret societies. It is useless to deny because it is impossible to conceal that a great part of Europe, the whole of Italy and France, and a great portion of Germany, to say nothing of other countries, is covered with a network of these secret societies." Unquote. Twenty years later, on September the 10th, 1876, when Disraeli was Prime Minister of England, he said this, the governments of the present day have to deal not merely with other governments, with emperors, with kings and ministers, but also with the secret societies which have everywhere their unscrupulous agents and can at the last moment upset all the government's plans. And 26 years later, Pope Leo XIII, on March the 19th, 1902, had this to say concerning these secret forces. He said, quote, including almost every nation in its immense grasp, it unites itself with other sects of which it is the real inspiration and the hidden motive power. It first attracts and then retains its associates by the bait of worldly advantage which it secures for them. It bends governments to its will, sometimes by promises, sometimes by threats. It has found its way into every class of society and forms an invisible and irresponsible power, an independent government, as it were, within the body corporate of the lawful state. I submit that those right-winged extremists in the audience are in good company.
was Robeson, was Cardinal Manning, was Disraeli, was Pope Leo XIII, were these men conspiracy-hunting fanatics? The answer is obvious. It is the answer that has been hidden from the American people. And it is the answer, thank God, that the Birch Society is beginning to bring to our consciousness once again. <laughs> Karl Marx, we may conclude, was not the angry idealist that he is made out to be, but he was the hired instrument and agent of secret forces which commissioned him to draw up the manifesto of their party and which later used him and the first communist international. Marx was not the father of communism, but its willing child, a child who has become the manufactured hero of modern socialists because of his concern for the weak, because of his concern for the dejected, the oppressed, and the downtrodden. Would you believe that this hero of those people who are supposed to be the champions of toleration used to refer to his opponents in these words, and I reluctantly mention them because they shouldn't even be mentioned, but these are the exact words of the great idealist Karl Marx. He referred to his enemies as, quote, dirty Jews of Negro blood, unquote. Quite a hero. These are disgusting words from a disgusting man who worked for a disgusting conspiracy. <laughs> Certainly, Marx's chief claim to historical importance is unrelated to any personal greatness as a thinker. Rather, his chief claim to historical importance is determined by the communists' use of him and not what he did for communism. Marx's mark on history is not the result of his accomplishments, but it is the result of the accomplishments of the conspiracy of which he was a willing tool. As for Lenin and the Russian Revolution, Winston Churchill had this to say in the House of Commons on November the 5th, 1919. These are his exact words. Lenin was sent into Russia in the same way that you might send a file containing a culture of typhoid or of cholera to be poured into the water supply of a great city, and it worked with amazing accuracy. <coughs> Excuse me. No sooner did Lenin arrive then he began beckoning a finger here and a finger there to persons in sheltered retreats in New York, in Glasgow, in Bern, and other countries. And he gathered together the leading spirits of a formidable sect, the most formidable sect in the world. With these spirits around him, he set to work with demonical ability to tear to pieces every institution on which the Russian state depended. Russia was laid low. 
Communism is then not what it appears to be at first sight. It is not the product of intellectuals and fanatical idealists. It is rather a product and an instrument of evil forces which operate through secret societies and which have been conspiring for at least two centuries and possibly much longer to seize the world and to abolish and root out all authentic religion and all legitimate civil authority. Winston Churchill tied all the pieces together and he summarized the historical continuity of the conspiracy in the London Sunday Illustrated Herald of February the 8th, 1920. He said, and again these are Winston Churchill's exact words, from the days of Spartacus Weishaupt to those of Karl Marx to those of Trotsky, this worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization and for the reconstitution of society on the basis of arrested development and envious malevolence has been steadily growing. It has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century, and now at last this band of extraordinary personalities from the underworld to the great cities of Europe and America have gripped the Russian people by the hair of their heads and have become the undisputed masters of that enormous empire. Winston Churchill. Thus does Winston Churchill trace the development and the line of the conspiracy from Adam Weishaupt and his order of the Illuminati, which was established on May the 1st, May Day, 1776, to the establishment of communism in Russia. And I do not think that it is reading into anything to conclude that the reason May Day is the feast day of the communist movement is because the order of the Illuminati was established on May the 1st, 1776. As Nestor Webster said, the historian of the conspiracy, Bolshevism is only one phase of the world conspiracy, a fact which was confirmed by the judgment of Pope Pius XI in 1937 when he said, communism has behind it, quote, occult forces which for a long time have been working for the overthrow of the Christian social order, unquote. Now, were we living in saner times, we could end it right there and I could let you go. For once having exposed the conspiracy, it would be unnecessary to speak about why it must be fought against. Men would know automatically, as men did know at a different period, that not to oppose error is to approve it. And indeed, that to neglect to confound evil men when we can do it is no less a sin than to encourage them. <laughs> but here's the clincher. It is a sad thing that we must not only fight against evil men, but we also must resist good men who tell us that we are not bound to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Conscious that ultimately only a moral rebirth can save America, and that is true, they come to the conclusion that they must restrict themselves to prayer alone as a means of defense. And they do this not realizing that such an approach 
is not only unworkable, but it is actually unchristian. For if we do not add action to our prayer, then not only will our prayer not be heard, but it will rise to heaven as a sin of presumption. We cannot expect God to do for us what we are capable of doing ourselves. Can you imagine some of these good people telling their children not to study for their exams, but to pray? <clears throat> and don't get me wrong, to be frank about it, I think I agree with Congressman Schmitz, who had said on one occasion that on a practical order, in a sense, the fight is over. And by that he meant that without God's help we cannot succeed. That is absolutely true. But unless we prove to God that we want him to intervene, he won't intervene. Now there once were saner times. There were days when all that was really necessary was to shine the light of truth on evil and good men would rise to fight. For example, reaching back into history, on May the 9th, 1798, in the New North Church in Boston, the Reverend J. Morse, who was an intimate of the leading pol political men of his time, the author of the first American geography, and the father of Samuel Morse, the inventor of the electric telegraph, delivered a sermon in which he warned his people this is 1798, that conspirators had imported into the United States their dark designs and dangerous doctrines. In his sermon, Reverend Morse was very emphatic and quite specific. He discussed with his hearers the awful events which the European Illuminati had precipitated upon an already distracted world. And he then proceeded solemnly to affirm that the secret European Association had extended its operation to this side of the Atlantic and was now actively engaged among the people of the United States with a view to the overthrow of their civil and religious institutions. 1798. That those were saner days is evidenced by the quality and the degree of the response to these warnings. A man by the name of Dr. Vernon Stauffer who was dean and professor of New Testament and church history at Hiram College, wrote in 1918 that, quote, Morse's warnings by no means fell upon deaf ears. The due attention he claimed for the alarm, which he that day sounded, was promptly and generally accorded. Soon ministers were preaching, newspaper editors and contributors writing, and clear-headed statesmen like John Adams and even the great Washington inquiring and voicing their serious concern over the secret presence in America of those conspirators whose greatest single achievement a multitude had come to believe 
was the enormities of the French Revolution, unquote. Dr. Vernon Stauffer was not a member of the John Birch Society. The response, the response indeed was great when George Washington himself came to be convinced that the doctrines of the Illuminati and the principles of Jacobinism had spread to the United States. In fact, in one of his letters which he wrote to the Reverend G.W. Snyder, a Lutheran clergyman of Frederickstown, Maryland, he spoke of, quote, this is George Washington, the nefarious and dangerous plan and doctrines of the Illuminati, unquote. Washington was well acquainted with Reverend Morse's expose of the Illuminati conspiracy, and he recommended it. He recommended it, and he wished that it receive a more general circulation, for it contains, he said, important information. In those saner days, the mere sounding of the alarm produced its effect. Today, there are too many deaf ears and too many idle hands. Your job is to change that. Your job is to produce by education a proper perspective, the perspective that Americans need to wake up and to alter the course of our history. You must double and you must redouble your opposition to collectivism and to the conspiracy. You must multiply your efforts to expose and rout the forces of evil. There is no doubt about it. And do not deceive yourselves. The opposition of the enemy and the insensitivity of many to the truth is a high hurdle to jump. And what is even worse is the condition of those who, whose ears are open but whose hands are idle. Do not be mistaken. Those who refuse to act, those who refuse to oppose evil, those who refuse to join the fight for God and for country and who justify this inaction by an appeal to the multiplicity of their prayers are walking a dangerous road, dangerous to their survival in this life and I dare say dangerous to their spiritual survival in the next life. Listen to the words of Reverend Morse. I hold it a duty, my brethren, which I owe to God, to the cause of religion, to my country, and to you, at this time to declare to you thus honestly and faithfully these truths. My only aim is to awaken in you and myself a due attention at this alarming period to our dearest interests. As faithful watchmen, I would give you warning of your present danger. My dear friends, if men continue to labor under the spoon-fed conception and the superficial understanding of world events and of communism, they will continue to be manipulated into supporting the establishment of a world government and a worldwide tyranny. America and civilization stands at the crossroad. We are in grave danger. Unless enough of our fellow citizens wake up, most Americans will not only continue to support the politicians and the programs that increasingly deprive them of their rights, they will actually harness themselves to the reins 
of their would-be slave masters. People must be made to realize that the Communist Party of the U USSR and the Communist Party of Red China are not the substance of the enemy that is seeking to destroy us. They are rather the instruments used by the forces within which are seeking to impose upon us the same ruthless and total tyranny which they have succeeded in imposing on those countries which now suffer under the communist boot. That same tyranny by which, as Winston Churchill said, they have gripped the Russian people by their heads and have become the undisputed masters of that enormous empire and by which they tore to pieces every institution on which the Russian state depended. Russia was indeed laid low. Will America be laid low? Will the enemy within and the enemy without seek in the, succeed in their grand design and transform this great country of ours into a socialist state and merge it with the Soviet Union into a worldwide communist dictatorship and thereby succeed in accomplishing the goal which evil men have conspired to bring about for centuries. America's greatness is not diminished because unworthy men now determine her course and shape her policy. Her greatness is to be measured by what she has been, by what the United States Constitution says she must be, and by what she again will be and will accomplish if you in your time act according to the measure of your duties and according to the measure of your gifts. For many years those who have come to our shores have felt the burdens of poverty, ignorance and servitude lifted from their shoulders and indeed from their souls. There was always the call of opportunity, the invitation of hope. There was always that state of things which urged men to nobility. We have no dynasty to defend with our blood. We have no empire to be held together by great standing armies. We have no religious quarrels which we think it possible to settle only by wager of battle. Yet there is danger that we shall become effeminate. For it requires a higher and a truer courage to live for one's country in a right spirit than to die for it on the field of carnage. My friends, there are too many words and too few hands at work to save America. But of what value are words without deeds? They are lifeless and as dead as a faith without works. Words are idle unless they are filled with meaning by the deeds of those who utter them. It is a grave obligation and an act of piety and the duty of all Christians to love their homeland. It is a solemn religious duty. You cannot be a Christian unless you love your homeland. We must pray for America, but we must work for America. We must implore God's blessing on our efforts. We must implore His blessing on our efforts to expose and rout the conspiracy against God and man, which surely must have been hatched in hell itself. We must fight it, we must expose it, we must destroy it. And we must do these things 
in spite of the fact that there are many good men who are trying to deter us from this noble cause. <clears throat> if we do not, then America and civilization itself will go down the drain. The greatest, the noblest, the freest nation on earth will have died an early death. And there will come upon us the longest, most treacherous dark night of the soul the race of man has known. For if the conspiracy is not exposed and routed and defeated and destroyed, then as Robert Welsh has said, apes who know not man his glory and his dreams, his wish to be more worthy of his God, will stalk the earth and wield the brutal rod and stamp upon each tiny light that gleams. God forbid that such a day should come. We must do our share to prevent it and we must get other people to do their share to prevent it. We must fight the conspiracy in order to defeat it. We must defeat the conspiracy in order to save America, and we must save America in order to rescue Christian civilization. We must rescue Christian civilization in order to prevent the continued corruption of millions of immortal souls, souls that are now at the mercy of evil men and corrupted institutions. Let us hear no excuses to justify inaction. God will do his part if you do your part. And the first major step in doing our part is to get us out. Thank you. <clears throat>